0: Picture yourself in a log cabin in the middle of winter. From the frame to the walls, the entire cabin is made of wooden logs. A large stack of wood is piled beside the fireplace that heats the cabin. Every day, you bring more wood inside to feed the fire. You collect this wood from a central pile that you share with your neighbor, Pete. One day, you return to your cabin to find that the door was left open and the large wooden pile by your fireplace is gone. The communal wood pile is also empty. Pete has taken all of the wood in anticipation of an approaching winter storm. As your fire dims, your cabin becomes increasingly cold. You decide to dismantle parts of your log cabin to use as firewood. Pete, on the other hand, now has much more wood than he needs. He has so much wood, in fact, that he has to store the excess pieces of wood in different places around his cabin. Phosphate in our bodies is analogous to the wood in this cabin. It serves two essential purposes, structure and energy. Most of the phosphate in our bodies is found in teeth and bones in the form of hydroxyapatite. The rest is mostly intracellular as part of key molecules, including the energy reserve molecule ATP. With too little phosphate, we can't make enough ATP to fuel our metabolic fire, and as a result, feel tired and weak. We can borrow phosphate from our bones, but this will eventually weaken the frame of our skeleton. On the other hand, excess phosphate can precipitate with calcium and become lodged where it shouldn't, which is called ectopic calcification. This can be especially dangerous in blood vessels. Too much or too little phosphate can be detrimental. Our goal is to help patients achieve an optimal balance, a serum concentration of between 0.8 and 1.5 millimoles per liter. So what controls phosphate levels, and what can we do to modify this? Today, our patients have hypo- and hyperphosphatemia, and you are the doctor. The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled Heating the Log Cabin: Phosphate Level Optimization. Time for our minute physiology. Less than 0.1% of our body's total phosphate is in the blood. When we measure serum phosphate concentration, we are estimating the circulating reservoir that is available to tissues. Teeth and bones make up 80% of our phosphate to form their structural matrix. The remaining 20% is inside cells where it forms essential molecules like ATP. The main factors altering serum phosphate levels are gastrointestinal absorption, renal excretion, and modification of uptake into bones and cells. Like PEAT, the neighbor in our analogy, parathyroid hormone, or PTH is a key driver of hypophosphatemia. PTH acts in two ways. First, it acts on bone, releasing phosphate and calcium into the blood. Second, it acts on the renal proximal tubule to reduce tubular phosphate reabsorption, which in turn increases phosphate excretion into the urine. PTH also enhances distal convoluted tubule calcium reabsorption, which subsequently binds to and reduces blood phosphate. Therefore, the net effect of high PTH is to increase blood calcium and reduce blood phosphate. On the other hand, 125 dihydroxyvitamin D, also known as activated vitamin D or calcitriol, increases gastrointestinal absorption of phosphate. Phosphate removal by the kidneys is dependent on the glomerular filtration rate, GFR. When the GFR starts to drop in early chronic kidney disease, bone cells called osteocytes produce a hormone called FGF23 which acts on kidney tubules to help excrete more phosphate. However, as GFR continues to drop, slower blood filtration leads to phosphate accumulation in the blood. In other words, despite high PTH, high FGF23 and low 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, patients with advanced CKD develop hyperphosphatemia. Remember that calcium and phosphate avidly bind each other. This is the basis of calcium-based phosphate binders, the ectopic calcium phosphate product deposition which we see in blood vessel walls, and the resulting hypocalcemia following intracellular phosphate release in rhabdomyolysis or tumor lysis syndrome. All right. So now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about our approach to interpreting and correcting serum phosphate levels. Optimal serum phosphate is between 0.8 and 1.5 millimoles per liter. Let's start with how to approach hypophosphatemia. Step one is to establish the severity of hypophosphatemia and step two is to establish a possible cause. Severity is categorized as mild, moderate or severe using millimole per liter units, mild is 0.7 to 0.6, moderate is 0.6 to 0.3, and severe is below 0.3. Patients with severely low phosphate will report generalized weakness and malaise. They may be very sick. Severe hypophosphatemia is common in sepsis and is a predictor of death from sepsis. Since phosphate is required for ATP formation, low phosphate in the ICU setting can stress cells that need ATP, resulting in respiratory muscle weakness, hemolysis, and rhabdomyolysis. So, when evaluating the severity of hypophosphatemia in step one of our approach, it is important to recognize that replacing phosphate may be required before proceeding to step two, establishing the cause, in cases where phosphate is critically low. The three major mechanisms of hypophosphatemia are one, low GI absorption, two, transcellular shift of phosphate into cells, and three, renal phosphate wasting. Let's talk about mechanism one, low GI absorption. Causes of low GI absorption of phosphate are mainly diarrhea due to secretion of phosphate by the colon, medications like phosphate binders, calcium, magnesium, or aluminum-based antacids and niacin, and vitamin D deficiency. Dietary insufficiency is a potential cause, especially in patients with alcohol use disorder. But as phosphate is abundant in our food, especially in processed foods, it is rare. Now let's talk about mechanism two, transcellular shift. Low phosphate can result from shifting into cells. Insulin shifts not only potassium, but also phosphate into cells. Phosphate is lowered from endogenous insulin production in refeeding syndrome, and insulin administration in the treatment of diabetic ketoacidosis. Intracellular phosphate shifting also occurs in acute respiratory alkalosis because of increased glycolysis and ATP formation. Finally, shift into bone can happen acutely after parathyroidectomy, where a precipitous drop in PTH leads to rapid uptake of phosphate into bone, called hungry bone syndrome. Finally, let's talk about mechanism 3, renal wasting. Increased renal phosphate excretion in the urine leads to low blood phosphate levels. Either primary or secondary hyperparathyroidism is the main cause of renal phosphate wasting. Proximal tubule dysfunction, such as in the Fanconi syndrome, can also lead to increased urinary phosphate along with urinary wasting of potassium, bicarb, glucose, and amino acids. Certain medications like acetazolamide and conditions like multiple myeloma can cause the Fanconi syndrome. A few genetic syndromes involving mutations in FGF23 and its interacting proteins can lead to hypophosphatemia and were previously known as rickets. Let's talk about our workup. The workup of these three mechanisms of hypophosphatemia includes history with a focus on medications and laboratory investigations. You're trying to determine whether GI losses, transcellular shift, or renal wasting is the cause. In addition to serum phosphate measurement, you might obtain a PTH, calcium, and a 125 dihydroxyvitamin D level. High PTH and high calcium confirms hyperparathyroidism, which can be primary due to parathyroid adenoma or secondary due to low kidney function. Kidney function measurement and a 125-dihydroxyvitamin D level can help distinguish between these two. In secondary hyperparathyroidism, low 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, usually due to kidney disease, is what stimulates PTH, whereas in primary, PTH secretion is autonomous and you'd expect normal 125-dihydroxyvitamin D. You can assess urinary phosphate concentrations if a renal cause is suspected. A renal cause is ruled out with an appropriately low fractional excretion of phosphate, or a 24-hour urine phos. The Fractional excretion of phosphate is calculated the same way as FENa. Appropriately low fractional excretion is less than 5%, and appropriately low urine phos is less than 100 millimoles. Okay, it's time to talk about treatment. Treatment of hypophosphatemia depends on the etiology. If it is from GI losses, you'd remove the offending medication, evaluate 125-dihydroxyvitamin D levels, and treat the underlying cause of diarrhea. If hypophosphatemia is due to a transcellular shift, phosphate replacement is required only if you suspect the patient has low total body phosphate. For example, patients with refeeding syndrome have low total body phosphate, and phosphate replacement is advised. On the other hand, in acute respiratory alkalosis, or in the treatment of DKA, low phosphate usually represents a transient shift, so phosphate replacement may not be necessary unless critically low or patients are symptomatic. On the other hand, unless there is impaired renal clearance or hypercalcemia, phosphate supplementation should be benign. How do we replace phosphate? Here is a guide. For mild to moderate hypophosphatemia, that is 0.3 to 0.7 millimoles per liter, phosphate should be given in oral divided doses to minimize intravascular precipitation with calcium. A reasonable regimen would be 10 to 20 millimoles Q6 hours times 4 doses for 24 hours. Serum phosphate should be remeasured after 24 hours to assess response to replacement. For severe hypophosphatemia, less than 0.3, and NPO patients, IV replacement is recommended. However, this carries more risk of precipitation-mediated hypocalcemia and associated ECG changes, a.k.I. and hypotension. A safe dose of k is 15 millimoles IV over 2 hours. Though severe hypophosphatemia is correlated with sepsis mortality, it is still unclear whether correction of phosphate impacts outcomes. If the cause of hypophosphatemia is PTH-mediated renal wasting, there are many treatment options. In primary hyperparathyroidism, the problem is too much PTH secreted from a parathyroid adenoma. Therefore, removal of the parathyroid adenoma is performed if the patient is symptomatic. In secondary hyperparathyroidism, the problem is low calcium, which the body is trying to increase by secreting PTH. Treatment with an active vitamin D hormone is an option. Vitamin D activation is a two step process with hydroxylation of both the liver and kidney required. In chronic kidney disease, the kidney activation step is impaired. You can circumvent this by giving either the fully activated vitamin D hormone, calcitriol, or the partially activated vitamin D3 metabolite, alpha-calcidol. Alpha-calcidol requires only liver activation. Providing activated vitamin D increases serum phosphate both by inhibiting PTH and directly increasing gastrointestinal phosphate absorption parathyroidectomy may be performed in cases of severe or refractory secondary hyperparathyroidism, including complications of hypercalcemia, such as calciflaxis. You would also expect postoperative normalization of phosphate, after careful management of initial hungry bone syndrome. An alternative medical option to lower PTH levels in non-surgical patients with either primary or secondary hyperparathyroidism includes the use of a calcium-sensing receptor agonist, such as cinacalcet move on to discussing hyperphosphatemia now. This will be easier and much quicker now that we've worked through hypophosphatemia. Hyperphosphatemia is defined as serum phosphate above 1.7 millimoles per liter. We can organize the causes using the same three categories. One, increased GI intake, two, release of intracellular phosphate, and three, poor renal excretion. With hyperphosphatemia, whether it is acute or chronic is also relevant. Within the category of GI intake, the main causes are phosphate-containing bowel prep and enemas such as Fleet enema. These causes should be clear on history. Intracellular release of phosphate is an important and often acute mechanism. Intracellular release may be present in tumor lysis, rhabdomyolysis, and hemolysis. DKA can also shift phosphate into the intravascular body compartment. To investigate these causes, check electrolytes, uric acid, CK, hemolytic workup, and blood gases. The final category of hyperphosphatemia is poor renal excretion. Treatment of chronic hyperphosphatemia and metabolic bone disease is one of the cornerstones of chronic kidney disease management. As we learned in our minute physiology, patients with CKD have poor renal phosphate elimination due to decreased GFR, and they are very prone to hyperphosphatemia as their disease progresses. In the early stages of CKD, secretion of PTH and FGF23 act to maintain phosphate levels in the normal range by enhancing phosphate urea. However, as GFR declines, the impact of these counter-regulatory hormones is negated by the reduction in kidney function. A strong association exists between hyperphosphatemia and calciflaxis, cardiovascular disease, and mortality in patients with chronic and end-stage kidney disease. Ongoing clinical trials are evaluating different phosphate targets for improving symptoms and overall survival in patients with kidney disease. Treatment of mineral bone disease in patients with kidney disease includes a balance of dietary phosphate intake calcium-containing or calcium-free phosphate binders, activated vitamin D, and management of hyperparathyroidism. Dietary phosphate restriction to 1,200 mg for pre-dialysis patients and 800 mg for patients on dialysis is advised. Did you know that total phosphate content isn't required to be listed on food labels? Patient education about their true dietary phosphate intake is key. All right, that was a lot. Let's recap. Whether you are dealing with high or low phosphate. Think about what is affecting its GI absorption, its renal clearance, and its transcellular distribution. Phosphate homeostasis is similar to potassium in some ways. It accumulates in CKD with low GFR, is shifted into cells with insulin, and the normally low serum concentration can be drastically elevated with cell lysis. PTH, vitamin D, as well as many medications affect phosphate homeostasis. Low phosphate should be replaced when whole body phosphate is suspected to be low. Symptomatic or critically low serum phosphate below 0.3 millimoles per liter warrants IV replacement. Otherwise, oral replacement is preferred. High phosphate is important to recognize and treat in CKD. Let's finish with our medicine minute. There are many free and open access hashtag foam nephrology resources to check out online. The Handbook Nephrology Secrets, written by some of the active members of this community, was heavily referenced in creating this podcast. We'll include the link with our infographic at www.theinternetwork.com. All right, that's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Heating the Log Cabin, Phosphate Level Optimization. This episode was written by Dr. Caitlin Blassard, First Year Internal Medicine Resident. It was reviewed by Dr. Matt Langtree, nephrologist, Dr. Rachel Bolton, nephrologist, and Dr. Stephen Montague, general internist. The Internet Work series was created by Alison Law and developed by Zara Morali and Leia Karyonopoulos. This episode was recorded and produced by Leia Karyonopoulos. Music production by Dr. Vincent If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. And don't forget to check out our website, www.theinternetwork.com. Her Associated Infographic. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.